Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Episode 133 of the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. Yes, it was that bad. But don't fret. Let's start the show. We are now the defenders of the stronghold of democracy and of equal opportunity. Welcome to the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. I am Chris Hahn. If you're joining me for the first time, thank you. Make sure you like, subscribe, rate, and review if you like us. If you don't like us, you know, you don't have to tell anybody about it. Don't, nobody cares. It's okay. Just not listen. It's fine. So, um, Tuesday night... Not so good for our party progressives around the country. Um, you know, I'm seeing a lot of narratives that it wasn't so bad because we held on to New Jersey. Let me just put some things into perspective for you. Uh, I live on Long Island. Those of you who might not recognize the accent, it's a Long Island kid who, when he was a actor in his teens his agent said to him you got to lose your Long Island accent I stopped acting years ago my accent has creeped back but it's not all the way back that's the accent you're hearing it's kind of like an it's like a Long Island accent light but I live out here on Long Island in Nassau County there was a very popular Democratic County executive who polling had up dramatically going into this election. She lost. In Suffolk County, the Democrats held the legislature and they've held it probably for the better part of a decade or so, maybe more. Candidates who did not campaign won seats. Seats that had never in the history of the county legislature voted for Republicans, voted for, elected a Republican for the first time. In Suffolk County. These are the suburbs, right? Why am I focusing on Nassau and Suffolk County other than the fact that I live there? They are the typical suburbs that swing left or right. There were seats in the Nassau County legislature that had never in the history of the Nassau County legislature been held by a Republican that were won by a Republican. One particular in Great Neck, uh, which is right on the Nassau-Queens border, Uh, There was a Democratic seat that was not even close that the Republican won by a huge margin. And this seat had never been held by a Republican. Safe Democratic seats were either lost or won by razor-thin margins by Democrats. Now, I got it. Democratic voters are worn out 
after the last four years with Trump and then the midterms and then the local elections and then the presidential election. I don't know why don't Republican prime voters ever get worn out? Why do they keep showing up? By the way, a lot of Trump voters who we would think wouldn't come to the polls came to the polls. So people start comparing this to other elections. Uh, Most recent memory for me is 2009 when Tom Suozzi, who's now a congressman, who I at one time worked for as his chief deputy county executive, he was county executive of Nassau County, was in his second term, he was running for a third term, he was incredibly popular, had done a good job as county executive, and he lost to a Republican, Ed Mangano, who wasn't completely unknown, but didn't really run a hard campaign. He lost by a razor-thin margin. I'm concerned. We should be concerned. We should not be spending our time looking for silver linings and trying to subscribe our own views, our own pre-existing views of what Democrats in Washington should be doing to the results. And that's really what happens, right? If you're a moderate, you think Democrats need to be more moderate. If you're a progressive, you think Democrats need to be more progressive. We need to be doing more. We missed the point. The point is, Republicans are communicating better to their voters than Democrats are. And Democrats need to figure out how to communicate to their voters and communicate the urgency of showing up on Election Day to their voters, or they're going to lose 75 seats in the House of Representatives next year. It's not going to be a close Republican majority. They are going to blow us out if we don't figure out how to communicate. And I got it. Fear and hate are a lot easier to communicate than infrastructure projects. Fear and hate are a lot easier to communicate. They are emotional connectivity. They connect on an emotional level. And that's what Republicans will campaign on, have always campaigned on. The reason why so many Democrats came out and vote voted in 2020 is fear and hate. Fear and hate of Donald Trump. And that connected on an emotional level. But you know what? Didn't connect enough on the emotional level to get them to vote down the ticket. We lost seats in the House of Representatives. And while we picked up seats in the Senate, we probably could have picked up two more. And we wouldn't have to worry so much about Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin right now. And part of that is, is some of the imagery of the defund the police movement, which was ridiculous, is ridiculous. Republicans were successful of hanging that around the neck of every single Democrat that lost in 2020. And by the way, hung it around the necks of some Democrats that lost this year. Yeah, reform the police. People are all for that. Defund the police, not so much. Dumb, dumb, dumb. And yeah, I sympathize I want to see policing reformed. I do not want to see policing done in a way that discriminates against one group of people over the other. I do not want to see African-American men gunned down because they were stopped for a taillight. I don't want to see somebody choked to death because he was selling loose cigarettes. I don't want to see that. I want to see policing reformed. I don't want to see it go away. And for a large part of 2020, the conversation was around defund the police. 
You don't think that had something to do with local election losses in Nassau and Suffolk County and swings, large swings among voters in Virginia and New Jersey. I got it. We held on to New Jersey and I got it that most of the time, New Jersey and Virginia will swing the same way in these elections. I got it. That didn't happen this year. And it's fortunate that the Democrats held on to New Jersey. But think about this. The president of the New Jersey State Senate, Senator Sweeney, lost to a guy who spent $150. Okay? Think about that for a minute. I I just want to be very, very clear. Tuesday night was not a victory. There are not silver linings in it. It is clear to me that Democrats and progressives have a major problem going into 2022. And that problem is a failure to communicate. And by the way, the failure to communicate is why the Build Back Better Act has not passed yet. The failure to communicate is why we just now got the infrastructure bill passed. And by the way, we got the infrastructure bill passed because of Tuesday. And I'm glad we passed it. But I want to see the Build Back Better Act too. And by the way, if we were able to talk about what was in it better, we'd win. It would get passed. By the way, not only would it get passed, it would get passed with bipartisan support. It's easy to talk about a bridge, tunnel, an airport, where that money's going to go. Everybody knows what that is. And when we talk about the human infrastructure side of things, the Build Back Better Act, we've got to be better at showing how this investment in people will make us more productive, will actually create jobs, will actually lower our deficit, will make people less dependent on entitlements. We've got to figure this out. And we've got to be able to push back on these fear and hate messages better. I get it. The GOP's new Southern strategy revolves around critical race theory. And it's ridiculous, and it makes no sense, and it isn't even remotely true. It is not being taught in public schools to children. It is being taught at law schools as it should be. But the Republicans were able to make this an issue. And what did we do? We laughed. Oh, look at these stupid people. Look at this racist dog whistle they're using. And that's what it is. But what's our counterattack to that? Our attack needs to be Republicans don't want to teach history. They don't want to teach the full history of the United States of America. We can't get into nuance about what critical race theory is. We can't get into nuances about wokeness and this and that and the other. No, Republicans don't want your kids to learn history. They want to put us at a disadvantage with the rest of the world because they want your kids to be stupid. It's just that simple. So Tuesday night wasn't good. Was it as bad as it could be? Probably not. But if you look at the 18-point swing 
from Biden to Yunkin in Virginia among white women, that gives us a real problem in house races in 2022. We could lose in places that we are not expecting to lose. And I'm sure I haven't seen real numbers yet in the suburbs of Long Island when it comes to exit polling, because I don't believe an exit poll was done here. But I think we're going to find similar numbers here on Long Island. And that is why Laura Kern lost the county executive's race in Nassau County. That's why the legislature flipped in Suffolk County. That's why both DAs flipped. Both DAs in Nassau and Suffolk County were Democrats. Both will be Republicans going forward. Why is that? It's not like their opponents lit the world on fire. Both DA candidates in both counties were better funded and better known. One of them, one of them was an incumbent. A popular incumbent who had done a good job. Why did he lose? Had nothing to do with him. I'll tell you this right now. It had nothing to do with him. It had nothing to do with Laura Curran or her opponent, Bruce Blakeman, whose brother Brad I know from Fox News. I know Bruce pretty well, too. He's not a bad guy. But the election on Tuesday had little to do with the candidates on the ballot on Tuesday. And some places, I'm sure there was, you know, big races in Virginia, you know, governor at the top of the ticket. Yes, people are paying attention to that. New Jersey, yes, they're paying attention to that. Although I will say that um, I don't think the margin would be this close if it was just about the candidates in New Jersey. Same thing in Virginia. Clearly on Long Island, it had nothing to do with the candidates in certain races, particularly, you know, down the ballot. People just went in and they voted with their tribe. And one tribe came out because they were fired up and angry and worried that we were going to get rid of cops and other things. Teach their kids that being white is bad. And they came out and they voted that way. And we've got 12 months to figure this out. So let's not play a game of it wasn't that bad. It was that bad. And it could be worse next year if we don't figure it out. So I've got a great interview with uh, John Nichols from The Nation. He's their national political correspondent. Uh, Fantastic interview. We talk about Tuesday night. Uh, You're going to want to listen to it. It's good. So stick around and I'll be back to wrap it up. John Nichols of The Nation is joining me. John is the national affairs correspondent. John, what happened on Tuesday night? A lot of stuff happened, brother. Uh, it depends on where you want to look. But the number one thing that happened is a national reality. And that is that uh, our Democratic friends in Washington, uh, the White House and the leadership in Congress, put out a proposal in the summer that uh, was a good proposal that had a, would have, you know, it's an easy sell, overwhelmingly popular with the American people. But then they made the mistake of going into negotiations with Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, rather than going out and selling it to the American people. Yeah. Press push on it. End result was that July passed to August, August passed to September, September passed to October, October began to pass to November, 
And what people saw was dithering in Washington, right? A, mm. a sense that things weren't getting done. And I think that, you know, in an overall sense, with a lot of different results in different places, but in an overall sense, I think that depressed turnout among a lot of progressive folks. I think it, uh, you know, it fed into, or it created, let me put it another way, it created a space where the Republicans could uh, throw in a lot of lies, a lot of, you know, misinformation, and you ended up with a, a result that was, frankly, pretty bad for the Democrats. But not, it, it, it's not as devastating as some of the news reports. Right. But right. pretty bad. Right. I mean, the Democrats held on in New Jersey. Uh, yeah. They held on to one of the chambers in the in the Virginia legislature, it appears. Um, oh, yeah. So that's good. So you have divided government in Virginia. I think divided government in Virginia is going to be fine. I don't think you're going to see a, a massive change in Virginia now that there's a divided government. Nah, we'll uh, survive. Yeah. And, and and I think it's uh, you know, it, it is what it is. And and frankly, uh, look, McAuliffe was not just running against Glenn Youngkin. He was running against history. Virginia doesn't elect people twice to governor other than one time in its, you know, 240 year history. Virginia uh, almost always picks the party out of power as their governor. And, right. And, and I, I, you know, look. I also believe, and maybe you'll disagree with me, I don't know. I don't think you could run against somebody that's not on the ballot. You know, I mean, I, I, I get that Trump's big and scary to a lot of Democrats, but he wasn't running against Trump. He was running against Glenn Youngkin. Well, here's the deal. It's easier to run against Trump if you're a member of Congress, right? Right. Um, and, and when you're running a gubernatorial race in an off year in, in Virginia, and Virginia has a unique kind of governorship, too. It's a one-term governorship that is, you know, very powerful, very personality-based. Yep. Uh, I think you're right. It, it is very, very hard to do. But there's other realities there, too. Um, at a time when people are quite dissatisfied with government, and this is an interesting dynamic, uh, Democrats poll almost as high as Republicans when you ask them if, they're, if they think the country's heading in the right direction. Right. We've just gone through COVID. There's a lot of discomfort. There's a lot of, you know, churn out there. And the Democrats in Virginia nominated a former governor who looked like the face of government, right? Right. Uh, and I think Terry McAuliffe, uh, you know, I, I'll say it bluntly, I think he was the wrong candidate, the wrong con. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I was shocked. I was shocked when they nominated him the first time, you know, 12 years ago. I was more shocked this time. I was like, why? He's done it already, first of all. It's one term. You don't get to come back. Uh, and I, I just feel like exactly for the exact reason you just said, he is the face of government. He, it's hard for him to run away from his, you know, insider game, which doesn't necessarily appeal in Virginia on most years. No. And he also communicates his, his way of communicating, which is not awful, but it's just, it, it didn't say anything that would suggest freshness or energy or excitement about, you know, something new, maybe moving in a new direction. And Yonkin, I mean, I, I think some people are, I actually saw somebody today arguing that Yonkin should run for president now that he's won for this race. And that's just nonsense. Yeah. Yonkin, Yonkin ran as a suburban dad. That was his, his persona, right? Tall guy, khaki pants, a nice uh, sweater vest. That was, that's pretty much what he ran at. Right. And it worked. It worked because he under underlied that run, he underpinned that run with 
you know, frankly, some very uh, racially charged, I would say racist appeals, um, and some of them none too subtle, but he wasn't really effectively called on it. So he no. got he got both the Trump vote that he actually, in some counties, ran percentage-wise better than Trump in some Trump areas. Right. Uh, at the same time, he got, uh, he really carved into that suburban swing vote. There was uh, one of the most telling realities of Virginia was an exit poll that showed that 17% of people who, you know, it could fairly be said, hate Donald Trump, right? Yep. 7% of them voted for Yonkin. Yeah, I mean, the swing among suburban women alone is yeah. a problem, right? I mean, independent women swung dramatically away from McAuliffe toward Yonkin. That's right. And, uh, and it was the, different, the difference in the election. Well, yeah, because we're only talking here about when every last vote is counted, when they sort through the absentees and everything. You know, I think you're going to end up with about a sixty to 70,000 vote margin. Right. Okay? No landslide. In fact, uh, here's, a, here's a twist for you that I promise you, um, I did MSNBC yesterday, I'm trying to think, but I did not mention this. So this, I promise you, you will not hear this on any media outlet. A Chris Hahn show exclusive. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, it's, I will predict, and I could be wrong on this, you know, it'll be a close call, but I predict when all of the uh, votes are counted in New Jersey, Bill Murphy will win with roughly the same percentage of the vote and a quite comparable margin to what Yonkin won by in Virginia. Huh. Um, that's not a landslide, not, not by any means. But it's a comfortable but victory. A comfortable victory. Right now, I just checked before we went on, Murphy is up by 45,000 votes. There's still about 5% of the vote uncounted. It's mostly in Democratic areas. Um, you know, I don't think it's going to boost massively, but the bottom line is that if we had a system where we didn't announce the results until all the votes were counted, the storyline from Tuesday night would be radically different. Yeah. Well, I, I think... Sorry, Democrats yeah. Held one, I just say Democrats held one state. They lost another. But the state they held, New Jersey, the, the governor there, Phil Murphy, was the first Democrat to be reelected since 1977. Right. Right. Not a bad story. No, not a bad story at all. It doesn't seem to be getting told at all, frankly. No. But I will tell you, I mean, and we'll talk about this on the other side of the break because I'm coming up against the break here. The local results around the country and some of the local races, like here in New York, uh, out in the suburbs, they were dramatic that was uh, bad. Yeah, bad night. a very, very bad night. And um, uh, and I don't even know the reason other than the national mood, because it couldn't have been about the candidates. Uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll give you a good example from personal experience on the other side of the break. But there was something in the air that yep. and I think it comes to part of what you said is, you know, the, the inaction. But I think it's got to be more than that. I think part of its pendulum swing. It's what happens in, in America. Part of its inaction, and, and there's something else that I well, can't put my tough, finger on. Of COVID, brother. Let me just tell you that we've this country's been through a national trauma for the last year and a half. Yeah, right. And they want it over. And it's going to shake up politics. It always does. It always, always does. All right. So, so obviously the Virginia, New Jersey uh, gubernatorial results they kind of offset in a lot of ways. They are kind of predictable. At least the Virginia one was predictable to me yeah uh but when we look down the ballot like john sweeney the senate president in new jersey 
lost to a guy who spent 150 bucks. Guy who's been, I, I think <laughs> right. he, it turns out toward the end, you end up spending a bit more than that. But the bottom line was that, that he wasn't a serious candidate. Right. In fact, he was, by all accounts, he was shocked when he won. Hmm. He was, by all accounts, he did not expect to win. And, and, and obviously, Sweeney didn't expect the opponent to win to such an extent that because in New Jersey, governors are term limited, or they have two term limits. Right. right? Uh, and so Governor Murphy, he's going to get reelected, he's going to serve another term. Right up to the moment the votes started coming in down in, in Sweeney's district, Sweeney was already sort of hinting, positioning that he's going to run for governor. For wow. Wow. That's, oh, that's what I... So no one saw that one. Well, he's got plenty of time to run for governor now because he won't be president <laughs> of the Senate anymore. You know, I always say there's only two ways to run, unopposed or scared. And and I, I, I mentioned this earlier in the show. My wife is a local lawmaker on Long Island. There was a red tide on Long Island, swept away Laura Curran, who was a rising star in the state party, the uh, county executive in Nassau County. My wife is the deputy presiding officer of Suffolk County. The presiding officer in Suffolk County lost his election. And a seat that had never been held by a Republican in the history of the Suffolk County legislature, which was formed in like 1971. And then my wife's seat, which was never held by a Republican in the history of the Suffolk County legislature. She had an opponent that didn't actively campaign, didn't have a picture in the paper, didn't show up to interviews, probably went to sleep at eight o'clock on election night and almost beat my wife. (laughs) So, you know, kind of crazy. So that's, that's what we were looking at though. And I mean, as you look around the country, we saw quite a bit of this. Uh, in Pennsylvania, I think one of the biggest stories was the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court race. Um, it was supposed to be a very competitive race. The Republicans ran away with it. They ran away with a lot of other judicial races. Why would I bring that up? You know, why do we care about judicial races in Pennsylvania? Because they're partisan. You run on a bat. You run on a party line. Yeah. And no one knows who the judges are. And so that's a clean measure of what happens when people come in, right? They just come in there. Am I going to vote Republican or Democrat? Uh, personalities go out the window. Everything goes out the window. They just, it's just the instinct of which party. In this case, the Republicans swept. Unbelievable. Battleground state, right? And so what we learned from this is that the people who showed up at the polls, I remember, I think there was some depression of Democratic turnout. Yep. But the people who showed up at the polls, they were coming to vote Republican. Yeah, they were not. They were not coming wow. to do anything else. They weren't asking yeah. who these people were. They just were voting Republican. That's right. And I think if you take it in that, if that's your perspective, if that's what you understand, then um, I think a lot of the analysis of Tuesday night is off the mark, right? Because you've got people saying, "Oh my gosh, this was a this was a, a devastating rejection of progressive ideas," right? That the Democrats went too far left, and you're hearing a lot of that around the country. But here's an interesting subtlety. Um, in Virginia, there's no question that Glenn Youngkin weaponized the debate about critical race theory. Absolutely, right? he did. Totally. Yeah, we know what he did. Uh, but there were school districts across the country where school board members were being threatened with recall or, you know, big challenges uh, on the basis of critical race theory. Across the country in those races, the school board members who were being challenged, threatened with recall, one right in one in Mequon, Wisconsin, where I was, suburban area, very parallel in many ways to Northern Virginia, um, closely contested region. You know, a little bit more Republican than Democratic. 
four school board members were recalled on Tuesday on the ballot. Tens of thousands of dollars flooded into the race. They had it was an incredibly aggressive, incredibly hard fought thing. You heard all the, you know, all the language that Glenn Yonkin was using on steroids. Yeah. The incumbents won with 60% of the vote. They beat the recall overwhelmingly. Wow. So I think we should be careful. I think we should be careful about assuming that there are huge lessons out of Tuesday about what works and what doesn't. The de- that doesn't mean the Democrats don't have to get their act together. They do. And in the state. But um, it, it's a, there's a caution about jettisoning uh, things or getting so freaked out that you go to the other side. You know, that you get too, too cautious about everything. And I saw that. I've covered politics for a long time. I saw that back in the 1990s. In 1993, Democrats were getting scared, and they tried to outdo the Republicans yeah. a whole bunch on issues like the death penalty and yep. welfare reform and stuff like that. 1994 comes along, the Republicans wipe them out. Yeah, yeah. Well, when Democrats act like Republicans, Republicans get elected. It's just the way it works. Um, they got to get something done, right? They've got to get the Biden agenda passed. They've got to get the infrastructure bill passed and they got to get election reform passed. I don't know how they're going to get election reform passed, but there's a path for the other two. They've got to work it out. It seems like they've agreed on a number now. So work it out. I mean, I, I keep hearing Joe Manchin saying, I want a score. Well, it's got to have a score. It's going to go through reconciliation. It's got to have a score. (laughs) So you're going to get your score, Joe. Are you going to vote for it when you got it? (laughs) So, yeah. What? It's coming a week late, brother. Yeah, you know, that's, that's the, the box coming a week late and um, uh, it, it's it's coming a week late and that's going to be something that they're haunted by and remember for a very long time. Because the fact of the matter is, if they had passed the infrastructure bill and the Build Back Better, the 1.75 million ones, when Biden said they had a framework last Thursday, yep. if they had actually done that. I think there's a very good chance Terry McAuliffe would have won. There's definitely a chance. And, and why Joe Manchin chose Monday to come out and give a press conference talking about why he's not voting for the bill is beyond me. Yeah, that was that was virtually that was virtually him saying vote for vote for Yonkin. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, he may not. That may not have been his intent, but that was the impact. I, I don't and I think it had a real influence. I don't understand how he could be so short sighted. That he didn't know that that was going to hurt Terry McAuliffe. I, I mean, he had to know. He's a political hack. He knows stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is not a guy who just became a senator. He was like a, a state legislator and then a sta- secretary of state. No, I'm telling you, you were, I don't know. How old are you? I am in my late 40s. Okay. He was already in politics when you were born. There you go. There you go. So he knows. If you're the Democrats... Do you rush and pass something and then take it on the road and sell it? Uh, or do you do something else? What's your advice? Well, they already screwed up, okay? And so now it's the question of how do you fix what you screwed up, right? How do you, how do you get it right? And the answer is that rushing to fix something is often the dumbest thing you can do, mm. right? And so I, I'm not saying they should pull this out till Thanksgiving or Christmas or next year, that's perfect, this long-delayed, unfocused way of, of approaching the thing. But um, they ought to get it right, and, they're, and it appears, weirdly enough, that they are starting to get it right. They're putting family and medical leave back in. Yeah. That 
You want to you talk to suburban women? You want to talk to working class women? Smart move. Now, I'm going to tell you, men care about it as much or more, uh, but polling shows that that can really, that can really have an impact. So it's a, it's a smart move. And of course, uh, Viceroy Manchin has already said that he is not going to support that. I mean, I know. You know, that, but see, then it gets to the second part of what I'm going to say. First off, um, you know, make your adjustments on this based on the crisis that you've just been through. Don't, you know, don't for, don't deny it. Don't don't play games that just want to pass something. Pass something that's good that responds to the problem you've got. Secondly, when you've got a plan, don't announce anything. Don't announce you have a framework. Right. People are sick of that. Yeah. I mean, you either have an agreement or you don't. Right. And announce there's going to be a vote. That's right. And if the House does it, right, if they can get the House to vote for both of them, um, or, you know, you've got to get that movement that's going back to the Senate, um, and that's getting into very tenuous territory because it is about whether you trust Manchin. Right. Um, you know, that's, that's where you do launch a full-court press. I mean, that, you have to campaign on this thing. When you've scheduled the House vote, maybe you schedule the House vote, don't schedule it for immediately, schedule it for a week, and then go out to the country and really talk about it. I don't understand. They have never, I, never done. No, they haven't. People just know the price tag. They don't even know what's in it. I think the last time we talked, which was about four months ago, we were saying the same conversation. People talk about the price, not what's in it. And it's driving me. In political Groundhog's Day. Yeah. It's just, it's ridiculous in my opinion. And I also, quite frankly, I don't understand why they can't try to get like a Lisa Murkowski or one of the retiring senators to support the damn bill. Like Lisa Murkowski doesn't even have the Republican line in Alaska. And she won't. <laughs> right. Um, no, I mean, look, there's that element of it. And uh, I certainly have that conversation, you know, uh, it, for a variety of reasons. One thing is, if, we, if you were to get Murkowski over, which I think is hard, you know, this challenge is there. But if you were to get Murkowski over, that leaves cinema and mansion no space. So yeah. It's like you don't get, you, some people theorize, oh, well, you get Murkowski and then you don't need cinema or mansion wrong wrong that's you, not how it works you need one of them you get her you get both of them right uh, yeah right so it's worth an effort but the main thing is i'll tell you your show is on in your market around the country right right so but i mean it's not the biggest show in america it's an important show it's one of those um, shows <laughs> it's a show right but it's an important what i'm talking about is uh, what i mean by full court press you would have a couple of cabinet members on your show. They yeah. go down, they go to that level. They would hit every market, every way that's necessary. Right. Every cabinet member is doing interviews. Every aide, every senator who's on their side, and for a week they talk about nothing but what's in it. You'd be surprised at how easy it gets. How easy it is to start to move wavering Democrats at that point. I, I had no problem getting them on the show during the campaign. That's what I mean. <laughs> you know, campaign yeah. time. They were all on. They were calling me. Can we come on? Can we send somebody? You know, it's and you're, like, and you're exactly where I mean, you're talking about Long Island, right? Yep. They say, oh, that's a Democratic area, or Democratic state, blah, blah, blah. Well, but right. Where did they just have trouble on Tuesday? They, it's not a Democratic state right now. Not, I mean, not, not this part of the state. <laughs> you know, feel that way, right? Right. So that's exactly where they ought to go. Yeah. And talk it up. So, I mean, I'm not trying to make you feel good. No, but I, I, but you I, are making me feel good. So you can keep going. Go ahead. That's no. my job. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you understand what I'm saying? Right. That, that, that kind of push that recognizes that you go 
you know, you go to any show that's got reach, you go to any platform that can communicate, and you talk in a great, big, powerful way about what's in this bill. You do that, and it becomes much harder for a mansion or a cinema to give you a hard time. Yeah, I hear that. And and I don't, they, they really do need to make that push. The problem is, it feels like the president is not good at that. And he so, just, so just, yeah. Yeah, he's got to send somebody out, though. He's got to send the, the cabinet out. He's got to get them out there to, to push this bill. Right, and it's, also, this is no longer a question of what you're good at or what you're bad at. This is a question of, you know, like, test. It's how much you do. Right. How aggressively you go and push it. Now, if you're going to make mistakes and say dumb stuff, you know, like Terry McAuliffe in a debate, uh, but maybe you should maybe you should be right, not bad. And stuff. Right. But, but... If you can communicate, and you know Biden's cabinet is packed with people who are capable. Pete Buttigieg, fantastic. Yeah. Oh, half half of his cabinet used to be MSNBC or CNN contributors. Yeah. Why Why isn't Ron Klein on TV more? <laughs> Ron Klein's done my show a bunch of times before he was, you know, That's chief of staff. Why isn't he on TV so, more? <laughs> we could belabor this forever, but we've got the point here. This, right. Once you've got the plan, once you've got the deal, um, you schedule a vote. And then you use the time before that to make this, to overwhelm the discourse. Yeah. To such an extent that people really can't, uh, they're embarrassed to be opposed. And I think that can have a real impact. Uh, I hope. That's just politics 101. I hope you're right. I I really, truly hope you're right. All right. I got about a minute left with you. Um, Quickly. This Supreme Court case is they're hearing, one on the gun law in New York State, the abortion law in Texas. You know, your quick hot take on those things. Sure. Um, look, the Supreme Court's a mess right now. Um, but there's some evidence that uh, it doesn't want to become such a big issue that, uh, that it, it blows everything up. So I think it's still legitimate to suggest that the court may dial back some of the crazy but I don't think they're going to dial it all back. And this gets to the fundamental level. I have for a long time advocated that Democrats should have come in and expanded the size of the court. Yeah. Um, they should have added two seats to that court because they had two seats stolen from them. Yeah. Simple, basic politics. And, I mean, you, people say you had a bad night Tuesday night, and so now nobody wants to do anything. Bottom line is, to the heart of the matter, we're going to get there someday. It's either going to come now or next year or a year from now. But at some point, Democrats are going to have to acknowledge that, you know, you can't have a court that is going to, you know, literally um, forget about the Constitution when yep. you're talking about an issue like a and, and frankly, if it was the Republicans, if the shoe was on the other foot, they'd do it. McConnell would figure out a way to do it, just how he figured out how to steal those seats. John Nichols, the nation, read him. He's fantastic. Thanks for joining me, John. Total honor to be with you, brother. Thanks for having me on. All right, I hope you like John Nichols. He's great. Read the Nation. I mean, if you're subscribing to this show, you're probably reading the Nation, right? I get a lot of guests from the Nation. They're great, uh, and it's great reading. So I, I want to just change gear from politics. I'm done gnashing my teeth over Tuesday tonight. I think we've done enough of that. Uh, but I do want to gnash my teeth about one other topic: uh, daylight savings time, America. It's Monday as I tape this. I am dragging, as I'm sure you all are, late in the day. I mean, it's great in the morning, right? Daylight savings time. Standard time is what we're on right now on the East Coast. Fantastic in the morning. 
But then at 4.30, it's pitch black. And 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 what do you do about your dogs? Uh, I, you know, my dogs at 3.30, I usually feed them around 4.30. My dogs at 3.30 today were like looking at me like, what the hell is wrong with you? We don't have watches. Dogs do not have watches. They do not know that it's daylight savings time. Now, I, you would think that they would understand that I fed them an hour later in the morning and then in the afternoon, you know, just chill out. But they don't. Their bellies were grumbling at around 3.30 and it was intolerable. I was trying to get some work done and I wasn't able to do it. We got to lock the clock. I know there's there's legislation all over the country to lock the clock. And frankly, Congress should just lock the clock. And I know there's another podcast, John Lovett, uh, you know, Pod Save America and uh, Love It or Leave It, much bigger podcasts than mine. And I do listen to them. And I am not trying to steal his issue. This is clearly a John Lovett issue, but he is so freaking right about it. Um, it needs to get done. We need to do something about this. We should not be plunged into darkness at 4.30 on the East Coast. It's ridiculous. It's still beautiful this time of year in New York now. I, I Believe me, I attribute a lot of it to global warming because it was 65 degrees today on Long Island. And beautiful. It's sunny. The trees are, you know, the leaves are changing colors. Uh, it's a nice crispness to the air, particularly at night. But I don't want the night to start at 4.45. I mean, it shouldn't get dark before before 6 or, okay, maybe a little bit before 6, late, late, late in the year. We're going to bottom out at 4.25 sunset here in New York. 4.25. That's not right. It's just not right. It's got to get fixed. It is a ridiculous thing that we do for God knows what reason. I don't even know the reason why we do this anymore. Daylight savings time is far superior to standard time. And I know it has something to do with farming, like everything else in this country, like voting in November on a Tuesday has something to do with farming. And I get it. We've got a lot of farmland in this country, but we don't have a lot of farmers anymore. We got a lot of big agricultural companies that use fewer people to do what you used to need thousands of people to do. You used to have thousands of family farms, and now we've got like two companies that run 80% of the farming in this country. Yeah, there's 20% is family farms, but I'm pretty sure they'd be cool with ending daylight savings time too because I, I've talked to a lot of farmers about this. They don't know why we do it either. I It had something to do with farming 100 years ago. It doesn't have anything to do with farming anymore. It has something to do with just tradition. And we do this for God knows what reason. It throws us all off for a week. I way I understand it, people get into more car accidents. There's more depression. There's all sorts of things that go on as a result of daylight saving times. As for me, I'm just dragging it a little bit. And I had to deal with two dogs that were very hungry too early today. But we need to come together. I think we can all join hands, Republicans and Democrats, and say that... Getting dark at 4.30 is not good for anyone. So it's time for a change. Let's lock the clock on save, on daylight savings time and be done with it. All right. I want to remind you now, as I always do, to seek the truth. Question everyone and everything, even me. Seek the truth. I know it's out there and I know you'll find it if you look for it. And I'll be back here again next week to tell you the truth as I see it. I'm Chris Hahn. 
Thanks for listening to the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.